Hello and welcome to episode three of the Funds Fan podcast, brought to you by Interactive Investor in partnership with Money Observer magazine and Moneywise magazine. I am Kyle Caldwell, Deputy Editor of Money Observer, and joining me today is Tom Becker, Chief Investment Officer at Punter Southall Wealth, and our very own Tom Bailey, Money Observer's staff writer. As usual, we're going to start off looking at a couple of news items in the funds world, and we kick off with, surprise, surprise, Neil Woodford. Investors in the LF Woodford Equity Income Fund were given an update towards the end of January regarding how much they would receive as their first payment, which was paid at the end of January. Tom Bailey, has been following developments very closely. Can you uh, provide an update on what investors were informed? Link told investors last week what they received per share of the assets they've sold so far. The amount per share varies a fair bit, so those in the A accumulation share class will receive or have received about 58p per share. Those in the F accumulation class have received about 46p per share. When this was announced, a unit in the fund was valued at about 78p per share, so it represents kind of 74% of the assets in the fund. So that means not all the assets have been sold yet, and there are potentially more payments down the line for investors. But it's not really clear how much that will be, because what's been sold so far was the unlisted part of the portfolio, which BlackRock was tasked with selling. That's the listed part of the exposure, yeah? Yeah, sorry, the listed. The remaining 16%, or potentially 16%, is the unlisted part of the portfolio, which private equity specialist Park Hill has been put in charge of selling. But there's not been much update so far on how, how that's advanced. Being unlisted, there's still enormous uncertainty about the value of these holdings and therefore what investors will actually receive. Well, as you mentioned, Tom, there has been little information regarding how those sales of the unlisted part of the portfolio are going. Um, Tom Beckett, I'd like to bring you in at this point. I mean, obviously, this is one of these scenarios where the phrase, how long is a piece of string applies, but perhaps to give um, listeners to this podcast a bit of context, in terms of selling a position in an unlisted business, how long can the process take versus, say, a small company that's listed on the A market? Well, I don't want to give a ridiculous answer, but you've kind of given the answer in your question because it is a case of how long is a piece of string. So these investment sales will take place by appointment rather than on a situation whereby you're trading on a recognised liquid exchange. And to be perfectly honest, people know exactly what the holdings are. They can see you coming. They can be predatory. So this could take a very long time. If you compare selling an unlisted business, even against a sort of small cap aim-listed company, it could be in an infinity amount of length of time to sell this asset. You really won't sell it until someone thinks they can get the asset they want at the price they want to. Even selling shares on the AIM market can be extremely difficult. Again, you're in a situation there where some of these less traded shares trade by appointment once again. So, you know, how long is a piece of string is exactly the right way to answer it. I imagine they're finding it very difficult. Could take, you know, potentially several months rather than in a couple of months? Look, I mean, you can, you can always sell something. It's the price that you can get for it. But if they're doing it and um, maintaining their fiduciary duty to get the best results for the unit holders of this fund, it could take a very long time. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't got a speciality knowledge of trading in these specific investments, but my understanding from speaking to people in the industry is it, they're very difficult to sell. Wolford was again in the news following comments made by fund manager Nick Train who apportioned some of the blame in Woodford's direction for the share price performance of Lindsell Train Investment Trust falling flat in the second half of 2019. And Tom Bailey, what was what was said? The kind of background to this is Nick Train's Investment Trust has a large holding in Nick Train and Michael Lindsell's um, investment management company, Lindsell Train Limited. And so the trust is kind of often seen as a, a proxy for the confidence in 
Trains general investment style and his range of funds as a whole. So this meant at one point the trust was trading at 80% premium. That's now fallen to 13% premium. In his latest communication to shareholders, Train in part blamed this to the increased scrutiny in the fallout of the Woodford debacle. In particular, the supposed liquidity risk of some of his funds due to the large ownership stakes they've accrued over the years and kind of the issues that he could have with trying to sell having such a large holding in these companies. Everyone's talking about liquidity again because of the issue with Woodford. But Train denies it's too much of an issue. And it is important to note that the Woodford incident is completely different and Nick Train doesn't own small, unlisted biotech companies. It does serve as a lesson, though, that um, if you know investment trusts on you know sky-high premiums or you know 80%, they can they can dramatically fall back close towards par over time. Nick Train is not alone in coming out and giving us two pence worth on Neil Woodford. Um, in the previous podcast, we discussed comments made by another respected fund manager, Teddy Smith, who made the point that one of the main reasons for Neil Woodford's fall from grace was that he changed the game in terms of investing in a different manner. Moving on, the next news item we're going to discuss was an update by the MNG property portfolio. The fund was initially suspended in early December um, due to having high and sustained outflows, that's um, investor withdrawals in non-jargon terms. And according to the fund, it was down to Brexit-related uncertainty and the ongoing weakness of the UK retail sector, which made it difficult to sell commercial property. There was an update a couple of weeks ago in which MNG said the fund will remain suspended. It has sold some of its assets, but the fund's cash position today is not large enough to um, to meet the investor withdrawals. Tom Beckett, what's your thoughts in general on the open-ended structure, if you like, for property funds and also the MNG suspension? Well, it's funny you mentioned the suspension linkage to the MNG fund because in all of the years that I've had seeing fund managers, when I met the MNG property team, I thought that they were probably, if I was to invest in the asset class, the people I'd invest with, I perceived them to be absolutely outstanding in the field of commercial property investment. But I would never invest in their fund. And I would never invest again in a UK commercial property fund um, because it's just mixing the wrong things of investment. Short-term retail investors' cash flows with long-term illiquid assets. I mean, it's just a recipe for disaster. And I'm amazed that the lessons of the great financial crisis and this first triggered off in 2007 have, have been so quickly forgotten by investors. These are obviously a dangerous structure and they just don't work. You know, we've now seen them being th- spent three times in my career um, and I think we'll see it happen again in the future unless radical steps are taken to prevent these sorts of fit funds being offered to retail investors. I just, I just don't think they're suitable. Since the um, EU referendum vote, um, I've noticed that a lot of the funds in the um, in the open-ended commercial property sector they have raised their cash levels, and um, I think I think it'd be fair to say that typically, from what I've seen, that these cash positions are between fifteen to twenty-five percent. Um, obviously, the M and G fund had only around five percent in cash when it suspended. So, I mean, I assume this is the reason why this fund and not other property funds. Have suspended. Yeah, and it's it's not just the illiquid nature of the assets which we're concerned about investing in these in these funds. The, the other thing which which doesn't compensate investors is the paltry lack of yield on offer for investing in such assets and the poor likelihood future returns of such investments, regardless of whether or not the UK economy really picks up. And, and part of the lack of return comes from the inefficiencies you mentioned with regards to the liquidity buffer these funds feel as though they need to hold. That undoubtedly holds back returns because if you've got twenty percent of the portfolio doing nothing, 
and still having fees charged on top of them, well, you're getting a significantly negative return from that part of the portfolio. These just don't make sense, these investments. And, you know, we just don't invest on behalf of our clients. In a way, it'd be fairer, wouldn't it? If the cash position is going to be around 20%, typically, that the fund fee would reflect that in being one-fifth cheaper? No, I totally, I totally agree with that. But also, you know, take into account that these are not cheap structures in the first place. Fees are quite high. The overall costs are quite high. Um, the tax um, implications of buying and selling properties, um, as far as I understand, are also um, quite c- considerable. So once the investors have quite often paid for the income they're receiving through the various income tax rates, there isn't much on offer for taking quite a lot of illiquidity risk. It's just not one for me. Uh, moving on from property to climate change, one extreme to another, it has emerged that the uh, Church of England is launching its own customised passive index to invest its pension savings in. The index aims to capture company alignment to the Paris Climate Agreement. Tom Bailey, um, what sort of companies will be included or excluded in this index? The index will try and include and weight towards companies which have targets aligned with the Paris Agreement on climate change. But interestingly, this does not mean that all fossil fuel companies will be excluded outright. The church said it will include oil and gas companies that have targets to transition to cleaner fuel sources. So example of an inclusion is Shell and Repsol, while ExxonMobil, Chevron and BP are all excluded. And at the same time, the index will kind of exclude the traditional industries which the church is not in favour of, such as tobacco, gambling, pornography. Tom Becker, this sort of rise of ESG, you meet a lot of fund managers in your day-to-day job. When, when they're giving presentations to you and other prospective clients and investors, are you seeing more and more sort of like ESG slides and presentations, more and more ESG rhetoric? Well, the favourite word of the media now is pandemics, given what's happening in, in China. And I think the ESG situation with fund managers has become a pandemic. Um, people are now referring to it in lots of ways that they weren't doing previously. Um, my views are mixed. Um, the governance element or any decent fund manager and any person like myself managing client portfolios should have been carrying out governance forever. So I don't really see that as much of a starter in the whole equation. The the sustainability element is clearly becoming increasingly on vogue and likewise the environmental um, concerns around investment. It's not the first time this has been um, accelerating. We saw the same thing towards the end of the bull market in 2006 and 2007. It strikes me from a cynical perspective that when everyone's very confident about making money and Wall Street's making a huge amount of money, people then start to care about the environment a bit more at the same time. But that might just be the sceptic in me. I don't know. But these these pressures are undoubtedly now influencing business decisions. Tom mentioned Exxon in the companies being excluded from the, the index being created. Well, Exxon's trading at the same share price it was back in 2010. And every single day we see other markets, in particular the, the technology-heavy Nasdaq index, smashing to new record highs. And that divergence in markets is not just being driven by the profitability of companies, it's also being driven by the fact that people see bad companies as bad investments and good companies in the sense of ESG as being good investments. That, to me, is creating distortions that we can take advantage of. So there's two elements I'd look at. First of all is I think that vice could easily outperform uh, in the short term. You've seen such a rush of money into ESG good investments that certain other sectors have been left behind. Tobacco was mentioned. I also think elements of the oil and gas sector are, are currently on their knees and you can see a recovery. The other side of that is my view that the environmental sector is the first time in my career of near, near two decades of investing has become investable. If you think back to the last time that this was really on vogue back in 2006, 2007, really it was just a few technical term crappy um, wind companies and solar companies, a lot of which then shortly went bust there afterwards. Now actually the environmental sector looks incredible 
incredibly attractive from the perspective of a long-term growth view. And there's going to be a ton of government money wasted in this space. And in a world of low growth and low returns, follow the government money and make some money alongside the money that they're wasting. So there's lots of views there, but you know, broadly, my view would be that ESG is something which is increasingly on vogue. There's ways to make money out of it, but there's also ways to make money from taking the other side of the trade. Indeed, and I'm sure um, in fact ESG is on vogue influenced the um, Church of England's decision to um, to launch this customised passive index. Now, for the next part of the podcast, I'm going to ask Tom Beckett to answer a listener question we've had in. The listener simply asks, "Should I make any changes to my ISA following the coronavirus outbreak?" That's a uh, very difficult question to answer, given that we are right in the middle of uh, coronavirus uh, fever, uh, for want of a better term. I think from the perspective of what does this change, I think we need to look at the impact upon global economic growth. Now, people have been very quick to say this doesn't really matter, it's irrelevant, look at SARS, look at MERS, the markets and the economy recovered very quickly afterwards. Um, Hey, let's um, buy the dip and send markets to all-time highs once again, which is what you've seen in the US market and certain other markets around the world. I take somewhat of a different view, in all honesty, because I don't think the global economy was particularly strong in the first place. I did expect a stabilisation in economic growth after a difficult year last year, and you'd start to see things improve through the first and second quarter. I'm now very much not sure that's the case, because China now really matters. If you go back to 2002 to 2003, China was a relative economic backwater, and it was also mostly focused on exports. Now, in an industrial export-focused economy, if you delay by three months um, the purchase of a pipe for an oil rig or whatever it is, that demand will come back eventually, you will see a V-shaped recovery. Now, China is 40% of global economic growth, and um, it is 60% of its economy focused on services. I'm just not sure that demand comes back very quickly. So I think that and the adjustment to global supply chains um, makes me um, more cautious in the short term than I would have been at the start of the year. I also think you um, listen to the statistics coming out of China with a major pinch of salt. I've got the distinct impression from speaking to people in the region that this is being underestimated with regards to its influence. Do I think that you change your portfolio much based upon the likely outcomes? I think it's too early to say, but I would be looking at the overall risk levels you have in your portfolio after what was a wonderfully easy year to make money last year. And I would continue to tilt one's portfolio away from the things which have done really well in the very short term, things like the high growth sectors, things that have been influenced by government bond yields, and tilt more towards the value and economically sensitive parts of the equity market. Because if the people who are very complacent about this are right, and we are going to see a V-shaped recovery, then ultimately, this should be the economically sensitive parts of the markets, which should do well. People talk about value parts of the market and various things like that. I I think, actually, that could be a good catch-up trade for later this year. There's been a number of commentators who, you know, over the past five, six years have been call and the fact that they think there's going to be this sort of value recovery versus growth. I mean, it's had a terrible 12 years compared to growth. Why do you think now is potentially the time? Well, and interestingly, you did start to see a renaissance or a resurgence in the performance of value over growth towards the end of last year, which I think caught quite a few people out because, as I see it, most investment portfolios are increasingly positioned on what's done well looking backwards. Most investment decisions still in our industry and the broad investment industry are made in a rearview mirror. So people are still backing the things which have done really well in the last few years high-quality growth defensive businesses, um, which strike me as being very expensive. The start of the year was a real um, earthquake in the sense that, uh, once again, growth massively outperformed value. In fact, on some measures, growth parts of the market outperformed value parts of the market by the biggest amount they ever had done, I think it was this century, in one month. 
I think you look at that now and think, unless you believe that we are going into a severe economic downturn and interest rates are going to have to fall further and profits growth this year will not be apparent, then unless you think that's the case, then there is very much a valuation argument for looking at some of the laggards of the last five years. And I would count the cyclical value parts of the market within that. I would count UK equities within that. And I'd also count the emerging market um, spectrum also within that as being something which could outperform. I I look around the world now and I'm far more worried perhaps naively, uh, about the valuation bubbles that are built in certain markets than I am um, about the global economy, even with or without the um, pandemic situation going on right now. It strikes me that the problems aren't economic, the problems are in the financial markets themselves. Thank you for that, Tom. Plenty of food for thought there for listeners. And finally for this episode, we take a quick look at one of Interactive Investors' Super 60 funds, and making this week's choice is Teodor Diloff. So, Teodor, what have you chosen? My fund pick for this week is Fidelity Global Dividend. Basically, it aims to achieve income and long-term capital growth, while at the same time putting a strong focus on downside protection. Dan Roberts is a highly experienced portfolio manager who has been running the strategy since its launch in 2012, and he also has the support of the wider investment team at Fidelity International. So it's a global approach, so it can invest anywhere the manager sees fit. So where specifically does it invest? Yeah, that's correct. So the fund is invested in quality large cap companies across the globe that have the ability to generate consistent cash flows. The manager is running a relatively concentrated portfolio of about 40 to 60 stocks, with an average holding period for a single stock of three to five years. And um, as at the end of 2019, the top three regional exposures were Europe excluding the UK, the US and the United Kingdom, uh, where the top three sector allocations were financials, industrials and information technology. Uh, Some of the interesting stock examples of the top 10 holdings include Deutsche Bors, Unilever and Schneider Electric. There's a lot of global funds out there for investors to choose from. I think in the Investment Association global sector there's around 300. So why does this one stand out and why is it a member of the Interactive Investors Super 60? Yeah, absolutely. So this fund has been designed to provide a less stressful journey throughout the whole market cycle and could also be used as a hedge against inflation. And although this strategy is not economically sensitive and has a strong track record, investors should bear in mind that this performance may lack in rising markets, but it's expected to outperform during the market downtime. Also, compared to the peer group, performance has been excellent over the long and short term. The fund has delivered 12% annualized return over five years against an average of 7% for the peer group. And in addition, the manager targets income which is at least 25% higher than the one provided by the MSA World Index. Currently, the fund's yield is around 3%. So which um, sort of investors would it particularly suit? Uh, Fidelity Global Dividend may fit the needs of lower-risk income-seeking investors who still want decent capital growth due to its diverse nature and defensive style of management. This fund could also be part of a core portfolio. Thanks very much, Theodore. And to all of our guests, episode four will be in a couple of weeks, so uh, look out for that.